So what we find in the gradual training frequently uh, following the description of the fourth jhana is further, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, one directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus, this is my body having material form composed of the four great elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, which is bound up with it and supported by it. All right. This is insight practice. Directing, inclining and directing the mind to investigating the body and the mind, right? So one looks at the body and sees that it is of material form, right? Got that one, that one's fairly easy. Made of the four great elements. Now, probably people here with scientific backgrounds, the elements are symbols for solids, liquids, gases, and energy. Right? You don't have to do it literally. It's not literally made up of fire and water. All right? Solids, liquids, gases, and energy. That's all your body is. Bits and pieces of that. Born of mother and father, you are a dependently originated experience. Okay? All right? And you're born of mother and father. This is where the body comes from. Turns out this is where the mind comes from as well, as we'll see in a, just a few seconds. Right? Uh, fed on rice and gruel. You are what you eat, is basically what's being said here. Again, you are a dependently originated phenomena. Uh, since I did the last since the last time I did a thing on dependent origination, I've come up with the Acronym SODAPI, S-O-D-A-P-I, Streams of Dependently Arising Phenomena Interacting. That's all you find in the entire universe. You are the intersection of a bunch of streams of dependently arising phenomena that are interacting. Okay? And the rice and gruel or fruit and vegetables, or whatever it is you're eating, is part of the streams. But there's also the streams of the genetics from mother and father, and there's the family of origin dynamics, and the school you went to, and the friends that you had, and how good the water was where you were growing up, and the air quality, and yeah, where you, yes, all, all the eight worldly conditions and a bunch of others as well. So. You are soda pie. You're the intersection of a bunch of streams of dependently arising phenomena. Impermanent. The body is impermanent. Got to come to terms with that. This is one of the things to be investigated. Subject to rubbing and pressing, or we could say subject to bodily dukkha, dissolution and dispersion. Bodily anicca. All right, so... We have anicca, dukkha, anatta, all in that statement. The anicca is coming at the end, the dukkha coming towards the end, and the anatta, yeah, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, right? So basically look at your body with your jhanically concentrated mind, the one that is given to imperturbability. This is really important. You look at your body and say, yep, wearing out. And it doesn't freak you out. The cool thing about the jhanas is that it tends to suppress your ego functioning. Everybody, I assume, is aware you have to think yourself up or moat yourself up. If you take all of your energy and you focus it into going through these very refined and subtle states, there's no bandwidth left over to be having your ego running around. It's like it went and sat in the corner, shut up. And so now when you look at the world, you're looking at it from a less egocentric perspective. Normally when we look at the world, we're looking at it in terms of, can I eat that or will that eat me? Well, we get a little more sophisticated, but that's about it. Is this something I want to get? Is this something I need to push away? 
Notice I is right there in the middle of it. Well, although it appears the world revolves around me, it turns out not to be the case. If you want to see the deepest truth there is, you don't want to look from an egocentric perspective. You want to look from a less egocentric perspective. This is what the jhanas give you. That less egocentric perspective and furthermore an imperturbable perspective. You have mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. So now when you're mindful of your body, then you're not perturbed. It doesn't freak you out that your body is impermanent. And you can actually begin to understand what's going on. All right? And then the last bit, and this is my consciousness, which is bound up with it and supported by it. Now the word vijnana, which we translate as consciousness, has lots of different meanings. In this one, it particularly is being used as a synonym for mind. So this is my mind, which is bound up and supported by my body. All right? So those who don't believe in multiple lifetimes point to this sutta and say, yeah, look, your mind, which is generally what people want to go forward, their, their bodies wear out when they get dead, and so they're not likely to you know, reincarnate in the same body, but the mind goes forward. And so now, looking at this sutta, well, bound up and supported by the body, the body's not supporting it anymore, not going to happen. Right? As to, you know, are there multiple lifetimes or not? I can show you suttas that will support anything you want to believe. Most, the deepest sutta in the whole canon, the Buddha says, one who has right view does not take a stand about my atta. Now the atta would be the equivalent of the soul. So one who has right view doesn't say there is or there isn't life after death. Okay, but that's for another talk. So, all right. But this is more support of, yeah, not just blindly believing, oh yeah, multiple lifetimes everywhere. Okay. So basically, the purpose of the jhanas is to give you a mind that is clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability so you can do your insight practice more effectively. It's like, it's like if you wanted to cut this table in two and you had a butter knife. Right? You could grab an old butter knife and you could start cutting. You make a little dent right away, but it's going to go really slowly. If you're persistent, you could cut the table in two with a butter knife. But wouldn't it go a lot nicer if you got a whetstone and started sharpening up that butter knife, right? Put an edge on it. Now you start cutting, it goes a lot faster. It gets dull, you sharpen it again. Right? This is what we're doing with our minds. We're sharpening them up by doing jhana practice so that we can cut more deeply. We can gain a deeper insight into the nature of reality. In the Tibetan tradition, the bodhisattva of wisdom is Manjushri. And he has a sword that he uses to cut the bonds of ignorance. Jhana practice is just sharpening Manjushri's sword. And cut any bonds of ignorance yet. You still got to go wield the sword with your insight practice. And you certainly don't want to just sharpen the sword by doing only jhana practice. Because if you just sharpen the sword, eventually, no sword left. Right? So the idea is you sharpen up your mind by doing jhana practice, and then you do insight practice. You start losing the sharpness, the clarity, when you start doing the insight practice. The speed with which it goes away is dependent on the type of practice you do. All right? If it's one that's got a lot of words associated with it, such as the five daily reflections, yeah, it'll fade out faster than if you're doing something like choiceless awareness that doesn't have a lot of words associated with it. But in either case, it doesn't matter. You got the sharpness now. Use it. And when it gets dull, yeah, do some more jhanas and get it sharp again. So this is the primary purpose of jhana practice. The side effect is long-term, it makes you more likely to fall into a positive emotional state. But the real deal is this is what makes your, this, this turbocharges your insight practice. 
questions, comments? In the back. When do you recommend that a practitioner start doing inside practice after they've dropped, into the, dropped out of the first jhana or after the fourth? Out of the highest number that you know, in general. Uh, from reading the suttas, I get the impression that the fourth is sufficient. Of course, if you only know three, then you do it after three. One is not as helpful because of all the PT energy, you're pretty agitated. But even coming out of two, you're in a better place than you were coming out of access concentration. Coming out of four, you're in a way better place. There are four immaterial jhanas, which don't get mentioned in the gradual training, except once for each of them, I think. Uh, or maybe twice for five, six, and seven, and once for number eight. Um, they seem to be optional things. If you can do them, great. You'll be more concentrated. But four seems to be sufficient. And so if you can get to four, that's when to do the insight practice. Um, so I've heard that there are multiple objects that one can use for concentration practice, metta being one of them. And I have done intensive metta on longer retreats before. But how exactly to practice it with the intention of getting dropping into jhana. Right. Um, because so far I've been practicing with phrases and um, visualizing benefactors and mm -hmm. different categories. Yeah, so what I would say is go on a retreat. That's going to be really helpful. And after you feel like you've settled in, then do metta for approximately half an hour just like you've been doing it, and then drop the doing and find a pleasant sensation. And for most people doing metta, it's in the heart center. It might be in the smile or something like that. And now you just lock your attention into the pleasantness of the pleasant sensation, stay with it, and hopefully it slowly increases and turns into the first jhana. So it's really about just doing metta just like you've been doing it with the trick of stopping doing it and focusing on pleasure. And when I've done that... Um because there's, you know, there's some momentum with the metta, but focusing on sensations of pleasure, um, like a, either the mind gets distracted by other wayward thoughts, or perhaps um, the feeling, the feeling of the pleasant feeling, goes away, and then, you know, yeah. I bring in more phrases to continue the right. momentum of the practice. Yeah, if you get distracted by a thought, come back to the pleasant sensation, right. assuming it's still there. If that's happening repeatedly, you didn't get to access concentration. Or if it goes away, you didn't get to access concentration. Next sitting, instead of 30 minutes, try 45. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, for, it varies from person to person as to how long they need to do the metta uh, before they can find their way into the jhana. And as I say, you know, you go on retreat and four days in, things shift. Probably pointless to try and get into the jhana before that shift takes place four or five days in. And then when it feels like, yeah, it's going really well in this sitting, then you let go of the metta and, and go for the pleasant sensation. Thank you. Other questions about insight? So uh, I have two questions. Um, one is more of an intellectual question. The other one is more practice-oriented. The mm -hmm. intellectual question is that I, I come initially from the Tibetan tradition, and I was in there for a very long time. And as you probably know, they insist a lot of the non-dual experience. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes I find that the way that is explained maybe in translation does not clarify a lot because yeah, non-dual is really hard to talk about. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it, it, and I even noticed this being discussed in, in the Vipass in the um, Theravada tradition. Is that part of the jhana where you drop the sense of self and you have less separation with the object, or it does not really factor in at all? 
the jhanas are very much dualistic states all the way through. There is very much an object, and any time you generate an object, you're generating a subject who's different from the object. So the jhanas are very much dualistic states. Coming out of the jhanas, then you can do your Tibetan non-dual practices more effectively. Like Dzogchen or Mahamudra, yes. that kind of stuff. That exactly. Okay. So then, when in the... Um, insight part of the practice, which maybe you're going to still talk about a little bit, or not, not really? Much more. Okay. I, I assume people know how to do insight practice. You can do Dzogchen, Mahamudra, Choices Awareness, Body Scan, you know, all the stuff. Okay. Well, um, you mentioned that you, um, did, you word the, did you use the word examine? Body and mind. Yeah. Yeah. And in the examination of the mind... You look at awareness itself, or? Okay, so the Buddha talks in the Satipatthana Suttas about the four establishments of mindfulness. The first one is body, and there are various practices given there, breath, postures, bodily activities, parts of the body, uh, four elements, and the charnel ground contemplations. So those would be good body practices. And for mind, it's the other three establishments. Second foundation is Vedana, noticing the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral reaction or categorization of your sensory input. Mind states, knowing your state of mind, just continually checking in and knowing your state of mind at all times. And then the fourth foundation, which be mindfulness of dharmas, or mindfulness of phenomena, particularly looking at phenomena with respect to the Buddhist teachings. The awareness would be an additional practice that would not so much be talked about in the suttas, but is still a very, very helpful insight practice. So, awareness is not talked about in the suttas. Okay, so much. There's a few places where you could say, well, this is awareness of awareness in the suttas, but you're pushing it a bit to say that. But all of the Tibetan practices that you've been doing would be good things to do post-jhana. Yeah. It's kind of pointless to do it before-jhana. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can sit down and do it, but it doesn't go nearly as well. I can't guarantee you come on a retreat with me, I'll be able to teach you the jhanas. But I can guarantee that if you do the jhanas and then do insight practice, you will get more insights than if you just sat down and did insight practice. That much is pretty obvious. So the jhanas tend to be quite disembodying. Disembodying. Yes. That's part of the why way. to do the, the yes. moving it through. The first four, you can, you know, sort of keep them somewhat embodied. If you do the higher ones, yeah, you've completely lost track of your body. But even the first four, especially the fourth. I mean, if you're really doing the fourth and you're dropping into Nimitta. Yeah. And there's just light. All there is is that. There's, there, you're so concentrated, there's not much experience of body. Right, on, which, on is, which is why the Buddha says, you know, step back, get, get in touch with your body right. again. Yeah, right. But yeah, they're, they're quite disembodied states, yeah. So my question for you is, um, again, <laughs> awareness. Even though there's light and relatively little experience of physicality, there's still awareness. Oh, yes. In the background. So uh, it, I would say per, all pervading, that the awareness pervades the experience. Okay, I'm willing to go there. I wasn't, I wasn't Yeah, you're not focusing there. on the awareness, but it's, it's through there. I'm willing to go there. Okay. Okay, so let's say we're there. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to go quite there, but let's say we're there. At that point, I don't really see the purpose of jhana because after, after a while of cultivating the capacity for such concentration, it should be possible to just sit down and recognize pure awareness and not have to go through all of this. 
Right. It is possible to sit down and just recognize pure awareness and then you're distracted. Oh, yeah, right. I was recognizing pure awareness. There it is again. I'm distracted again. That's what I find. Okay? That I can't rest effortlessly in pure awareness if I just sit down. All right? I run the jhanas. There's pure awareness and I can rest effortlessly in it. So I have a much more stable, long-lasting and profound experience of just awareness post jhana than I do if I just sit down. Anything else on insight? Yes. Yes, <laughs> it on. Yeah. It seems like the jhana practice is a way of getting into a right frame of being in order to develop insight. It's yeah. almost like taking a shower in the morning or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I often refer to it, it, it will turbocharge your insight practice. You, you're generating a mind that is well-suited to do insight practice. Yes. Right. Well, where's this second? Ah. <laughs> now you're going to have two. <laughs> to get back to the prior question, uh-huh. What is the difference, if you want to get to awareness and insight practices, between having gotten to access concentration, where you are right here and concentrated, what is the incremental or phase-different benefit to going all the way through the jhanas after that? You are far less likely to become distracted. You've stabilized your mind quite a lot. You've removed the ego tendency much further away. So, yeah, coming out of access concentration is a good place to do insight practice, but the residual effects of having been in access concentration, yeah, tail off fairly sharply. Coming out of third jhana, you got it a lot better. Coming out of fourth jhana, you got it way better. Yeah. So this is a kind of a, a different um, angle. Um, so when you were describing this practice uh, this afternoon, um, I felt a lot of um, parallelism with different fields. Um, so I, I used to be a professional ballerina, and I can see, um, you know, for ballet, but I would imagine as a, you know, concert pianist or really good professional golfer or different things that um, you actually cultivate the same thing. Like, I really felt, you know, those states. Mm-hmm. But you're cultivating those states with something other than just your mind. You're doing it with your body, with the music, with the choreography. All right? And here you're cultivating the states just with your mental capacities. But the experience of rapture, happiness, and so forth, doing some ballerina or uh, I, I sometimes get it you know, out in nature, hiking up a, a mountain, I get to the top, and yeah, it's P.T. and Sukha from that view. Right. So there, there are other ways to generate it. This is talking about generating just with your mental capacity only. Yeah, but... Um, in a way, it's the kind of the inspiration it gives me that, you know, I'm, I don't dance anymore and I feel that same rapture, bliss, mm-hmm. joy, yeah, yeah. concentration that I was feeling. And it's kind of a replacement. It kind of makes me feel that, you know, the movement or all those external things were kind of like almost unnecessary. It, it's, it's really... This, yeah. Underneath is the same. Right. You're trying to basically dump some neurotransmitters into your brain so that you light up specific pathways. And instead of using music and choreography to trigger the dumping of those neurotransmitters, you just do it with your concentration. So, but it's the same neural pathways and it's the same neurotransmitters. Yeah. 
In terms of the, uh, the object of attention, like uh, such as the breath that mm-hmm. we use, is there is that really similar to say other forms of meditation, like where they may have like a mantra, such as transcendental meditation? Does that achieve the same thing? Or? Yeah, I've had a number of students who resurrected their old TM mantra and got into the jhanas that way. I had one student who, whenever he got concentrated, would start hallucinating music uh, when he followed his breath. And I finally realized, oh, he has a TM mantra. Do your mantra first, jhana, right away. He had the concentration, but because he was a musician, once he got concentrated, he started hallucinating music. By having him do the mantra, he was occupying his auditory channel. Right? He didn't have any room left over to hallucinate any music, got into the jhanas. So yeah, mantra will get you into the jhanas quite, quite effectively. I've done it multiple times myself and had a lot of students do it. Uh, the nada sound, if any of you have worked with Ajahn Sumedho, uh, Ajahn Amaro, those folks talk about listening to the sound of silence, the high pitch in your ear. Yeah, you can get to the jhanas that way. Uh, body scan will do it, metta, breath. Those are the five ways I've gotten there. Especially the advanced TM mantras. Yeah. The advanced TM mantras. mantras were specifically designed for concentration. To the deep level, that base yeah. level, the hum, yeah. right before you drop into transcendence. And then that was the cushion for the cities, which I guess you're going to talk about now. So. I'm going to talk about now. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So the, there are mantras that are more effective than others, okay? But I haven't worked much with mantras. I just use Om Mani Padme Hum. That'll get me to the jhanas, so. All right. All right, so the next thing, with the mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wheelie given to imperturbability, one can perform the various psychic powers. So the first one is the mind-made body. From this body, one creates another body, complete in all of its parts. So, everybody understand that? <laughs> That's what it says. It does give a simile. Uh, yeah. It, it does give a simile from, uh, you pull a sword out of a scabbard, this is the sword, this is the scabbard. You pull a reed out of its sheath, this is the reed, this is its sheath. You pull a snake out of its skin, this is the snake, this is the skin. That's all it says. No. Okay, we'll come back to it. All right, the next one is being one, becoming many, being many, becoming one, appearing and disappearing at will, uh, uh, walking on water, diving into the earth, passing through walls and ramparts unimpeded, flying through the air uh, like a bird, wielding mastery over the body as far as the Brahma realms. I have a background in physics. Uh, it, it, It doesn't lend itself to me taking this too literally. Um, Especially considering that there are suttas where the Buddha actually is seriously opposed to doing this. Uh, In particular, Dignikaya number 11, uh, a layperson at Nalanda comes to the Buddha and says, send some monks into town to do supernormal feats, you'll get lots of robes and alms food and everything. And the Buddha says, no, this is not how we do it. There are these two miracles, the miracle of walking on water, flying through the air, and the miracle of reading people's minds. But people know that they're charms that allow you to do that. I personally, and and they'll think we're just using those charms, I personally abhor these, these things. There's only one miracle that counts, the miracle of instruction. And what is the miracle of instruction? the gradual path, without the supernormal powers on it. In fact, the supernormal powers show up in less than the majority of the instances of the gradual training. Okay? So, still, but what are they? Why do they show up there? Well, there's another interesting sutta. This is number, Anguttarikaya, book three, number 60. And a Brahmin and the Buddha are having a discussion about miracles. And for the walking on water flying through the air, the Brahmin says, this is like a magic trick. It only benefits the one who does it. And the same for mind reading. It only benefits the one who does it. It's a magic trick. Uh, And the Buddha agrees with him. So it's like these are private experiences. 
Okay, so what does that tell us? Well, I was in Portugal. I was talking with one of my friends, one of my students there, and he's very into lucid dreaming, and he talked about wake-induced lucid dreaming, which is the capacity to go straight from a waking state into a lucid dream. And he said it's called wild, wake-induced lucid dreaming. So I looked it up on the Internet, of course, and read about it, and the state you are to generate in order to step into a wake-induced lucid dream sounds a lot like jhana number four. Okay, so my opinion, and Steve wants me to make it very clear, it's just my opinion, is that the mind-made body, creating a mind-made body, is learning the wake-induced lucid dreaming technique. And what do you do in a lucid dream? Well, the coolest thing is fly. But you could walk on water, you could dive into the earth or anything else. So, given my background in physics and the fact that I have never seen anybody doing any of these things, and I've never heard reports that I actually gave enough credence to to believe it, my opinion is that these are private experiences, that making the mind-made body was stepping into a lucid dream, and that all these other things are lucid dreaming experiences. Now, you will find that most everybody who teaches Buddhism disagrees with me, but I'm just going to put out my understanding. I know there might be a few people in the room that will agree with me, and uh, okay. And I know there might be quite a few people who are upset that I put out something like this, but I just put it out there for you. All right? So that's the first two of the six. What's the party line on the supernormal powers and the Oh, oh the, the party line is if you're good enough at the jhanas, you can walk on water or fly through the air. <laughs> I would say that is the party line. Yeah. 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 I know of no instruction in the Buddhist teaching in any of the Buddhist paths except for um, in the Tibetan path where there's the six yogas of Naropa. Mm-hmm. But I know of no other teaching for yeah. the cities. They, Do you know? Yeah, some of thing? them are given in the Vasudhimaga. But they're but, not actually taught in modern day Buddhism, even in, in Theravada Buddhism, even in the other countries, are they? That's why I'm asking you. Yeah, they, they are taught occasionally. Uh, Venerable Pawok teaches remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. I don't know of anybody teaching walking on water. The best I can say with that, I was in Sweden one winter and I was able to walk on water. <laughs> but that's about the best I could do. Now, he's going to give you the official party line from no, the, the um, perspective. Well, you know, there's a, there's a story about Deepama. They have a whole chapter in her book. You can take that or leave that. And um, Mahasi Sayura encouraged her to, to um, develop. I think the official party line is... Basically, it takes a lot more... Con- it's easier to awaken the mind or get the first noble attainment than it is to do some of these things. It's a lot more concentration. Right. So you've got to decide, and Richard Chakman's book puts it nicely, at the fourth jhana, you can go three ways. You can go on to develop the other four jhanas, or you can develop the psychic powers, or you can do insight practice. So you've got to look at your life and go, where should I spend my time? Right. Now, some people... A real power junkie, so they go after the, 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 the psychic stuff. But the thing is also, it's like, um, you know, Olympic athletes. It takes, you know, just because you, you, let's say, a runner, and you spend all your time running, and you really develop it, doesn't mean you can be an Olympic athlete. There is some, some genetics in it, too. It's right. my understanding with the people develop the psychic powers, you need both those things. There's like, you have to have an aptitude for it, plus you've got to put the work into it. Right. And you've got to ask, well, what's the wise thing to do? Well, my body's going to drop dead. Me, I'd put my bet on doing the insight practice and developing that as, as my first line of defense. Um, um, then maybe the formalist attainments, maybe the formalist attainments, then the insight practice. And, you know, the psychic stuff, uh, I wouldn't put any energy into it unless it came to me. And if right. it does, you'll be the first I'll demonstrate it to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I would very much like that. <laughs> okay, this one and then up here. So, so to me, taking the 
assuming the psychic power thing is real, yeah. assuming the psychic power thing is real, it seems to me very frivolous. Yes. So why, why would you do that? I mean, I, it's just my reaction. It's the, it's the first frivolous thing I've, I've heard of in Buddhism. Yeah, there's a, a Tibetan story about a man who studied with his master for a number of years, and finally his master says, okay, go find a cave, practice. And so he practiced for 20 years. And then his master came to visit. And his master says, well, what have you learned? Well, there was a river down there, and he walked across to the other side and came back. And his master goes, you wasted 20 years of your life. There's a bridge a quarter mile upstream. <laughs> so, yes, there are teachings exactly that this is frivolous. <laughs> we got somebody with the mic. We'll get back to you. Go ahead, Diana. Yeah, so I'd like to address the question of the official Buddhist party line. <laughs> I feel very confident that I have the Buddhist official Buddhist party line. <laughs> I thought I was. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I think that there, the, Buddha, the official Buddhist party line is that there is not an official Buddhist party line. I, I think, I think that you're correct. That doesn't exist. So, you know, we could argue all day, and it doesn't exist. So. Right. And until somebody can fly through the air in here, I'm not going to believe in it. Unless you walk on water, but there's no water here. So, yeah. Well, I think um, those psychic powers have been talked about in many other traditions. Yes. Such as Nabon religion in Tibet, which kind of mixed with the Tibetan Buddhism. I think the book that is really thoroughly discussed is the Yoga Sutra by Penajali in Hinduism. Mm -hmm. But I totally agree. It's, so, it's such a distraction. Yeah, you know, because if the Buddhism is to relieve suffering, none of these is going to help at all. Right. Yeah, the Buddha said, "I teach just dukkha and the end of dukkha." Yeah, walking on water is not the end of dukkha, and it's not even going to take you in that direction, unless there's a flood. Okay, we got another question in the back end. Steve, did you get a mic? No. no. Right. So, um, given that there are a lot of skeptics in the room. Uh, but that I think people simultaneously kind of want to believe that that might be possible. Oh, yes. Um, and we all, I mean, a lot of people have very secular backgrounds and are sort of, they want to find a way to contextualize all of this within what we know about the physical world. The most compelling avenue of inquiry that I've seen so far uh, comes from an Italian neuroscientist named Giulio Tononi, who studies consciousness and how it can be sustained in physical substrates. Mm -hmm. And he approaches that question from the sort of opposite direction of everyone else. So instead of trying to understand um, what the brain does when consciousness happens, he defines sort of axioms for consciousness and tries to define physical systems that could sustain it. And a very natural conclusion from that process, which a lot of sort of well-respected uh, researchers have signed on to, is that panpsychism probably makes sense that consciousness can, can sort of be sustained in other systems besides the human brain to different degrees, and we can quantify it and so on. So if there is a way to reconcile all of this stuff with what we actually, with, with sort of science, uh, it's probably in there somewhere, if, 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 there, if it's there at all. Yeah, quite, quite possibly. Uh, as to what's going on, yeah, I, you know, like I say, I want a demonstration. Um, but as to figuring out why it shows up and, and how it can be done and everything else. I, I, yeah, I'm not worried about that because I'm actually interested in insight much more than walking on water. There is a bridge a quarter mile upstream. So, yeah. So that said, I've also seen lots of self-proclaimed godmen in India claim to have many of these abilities um, and then do parlor tricks around people who believe in those powers. Yeah. Uh, and then and they convince them of all kinds of things that they shouldn't be convincing them of to their yeah. own gain. So yep. uh, definitely not on board with misleading people. Right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, just let it go, mostly. All right, so there's two more. I don't know if it's uh, if through uh, gaining ability with concentration, uh, Buddhists can read minds, but... I'll get to that one. I'll get to the mind reading. Say, we haven't gotten there yet. Oh, okay. I was just going to say, I find it useful to... And I, I, I don't wonder about it, but I, I do find it useful to assume yes. that in a room full of accomplished Buddhists... Somebody can read your mind and you some, turn off the bad stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 would, you know, it could be embarrassing, so it cur encouraged me to let go of the daydreams. Yeah. I, I have used that multiple times. <laughs> 
Great. Now, the end of that story, the story I heard was a, was a Zen teacher, and a student walked on water, and he, said, and he walked across the river, and he said, here's a nickel. You know, you could have taken the ferry. That's how much your practice is worth the last five years. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Okay. All right. One more. We got to well, keep... Okay. The last one is just... Um, I, there's, a, there's a story of Mahapajapati um, before her Parinibbana, or I think it, the Buddha says, okay, before you go, go and show everybody your abilities. Your psych, you know, the, right? She reproduces herself in the air. She, um, whatever, all the all the stuff. Yeah, you you can find lots of mythology in the suttas, lots and lots and lots and lots. Um, you know, the Buddha when he was born, he took seven steps to the north and said in a loud voice, "I'm king of the world. This is my last birth." I mean, I have trouble believing in walking, talking newborns. Sorry. Okay. All right. So that's two of the six. The next two are hearing sounds at a distance, clairaudience, and knowing the minds of others, clairvoyance. This is ESP, right? Extrasensory perception. If you don't know what ESP is, raise your hand. Yeah, okay, everybody's heard of ESP, right? But science says, nah, not happening. But when I use the phrase ESP, and I say something like mind reading, we all know what's talked about, right? Is it that it's a phenomena that science can't detect? Or is it, which is what science says, is it that um, people are just misjudging the, the probability of something happening? Or, you know, I mean, what's going on here? It doesn't matter. Whatever ESP is, whether it's scientifically valid or people are just misjudging probabilities or anything else, that's what's being referred to. ESP is a well-known phenomena. We just don't know what it is. Right? It might be just people fooling themselves or it might be a real phenomena. But with a concentrated mind, whatever ESP is does seem to happen more often. All right? So you're either... Easy, more easily fool yourself, you pick up subtle cues and you think you're reading somebody's mind. Who knows what's going on? It doesn't matter what's going on. We do know from talking, I, I do know from talking with a large number of people who practice jhanas, practice concentration, that yeah, actually, whatever ESP is, it is enhanced by having a concentrated mind. Now, whether it's accurate, scientifically valid, that's actually an, a different question. Uh, I'm sure that people were doing the same thing that we do with ESP, whether it's scientifically valid or not, 2,500 years ago. And it does seem to be enhanced if your mind is concentrated. So that one, I think, is rather uncontroversial unless you're insistent on knowing the scientific validity. But I, you don't need that. And then the last two. Remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. Now, this is, this is a really touchy one. Personally, I like what Stephen Batchelor said towards the end of his latest book, which is entitled After Buddhism. It's a good book. It's one of his best books, I think. Definitely recommend it. He said that in order to give people the scale and magnitude of karma. He tapped into the belief in the culture 2,500 years ago in multiple lifetimes and expressed karmic actions and consequences in terms of multiple lifetimes, both personally, remembering my past lives, and generally seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. That, he, he, that the Buddha was actually tapping into the, the cultural understanding at that point to make a point, and we shouldn't take it too literally. Especially in light of the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, in what I think is the most profound sutta in the whole canon, the Kachyanagota Sutta, Samyutta 1215, uh, the Buddha says, one with right view does not take a stand about myself. He actually says, one with right, it says, this world for the most part is dependent upon a duality, upon the notion of it is 
and the notion of it is not. But one with right view doesn't get caught up in views and opinions and ideas like this. One with right view doesn't take a stand about my atta, my soul, myself. There are two extremes. The first extreme is everything exists. The uh, second extreme is nothing exists. Without veering towards either of those extremes, Atatagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle. With this as necessary condition, that arises. If this necessary condition doesn't happen, that does not arise. Itapataya cha paticca samapada. This, that conditionality dependent origination. So what the Buddha is basically saying is, don't think in terms of it, it is existence. Don't think in terms of it is not non-existence. See that there's nothing but soda pie, streams of dependently arising phenomena interacting. If you can do that, then the whole question of did I have a previous life, will I have a future life, simply does not occur. I mean, if you fall off the edge of the world, does it hurt? You know, if you don't believe in the edge of the world, the question does not occur to you, right? So basically what the Buddha is saying is if you can see the world in terms of dependent origination, questions about past existences or future existences simply don't arise. And that what he was doing there, if indeed he said this, all right, there's scholars are still discussing this one. If he did indeed talk about remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma, he was doing so as a skillful means to give the incredible impact our actions have and the consequences. It's not really limited. It's actually quite huge. So that's how I'm going to interpret the sixth of these. So um, I'm going to save any questions that come up on these and I'm going to discuss the asavas and then we'll have time until it's time to go. So the third major thing you can do with a, after the jhanas is use your clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy mind which is given to imperturbability to overcome the asavas. Now the word asava gets translated a bunch of ways. Influx, outflux, effluent, taint, canker, I've seen tons of ways it's been translated. The actual original translation was a, the actual original meaning was a secretion from a plant. Okay? And then the second one is a discharge from a sore. All right? And the third one, according to the Pali English Dictionary, it's a technical term for the intoxicants. We have the intoxicant of sense pleasures. We get intoxicated by sense pleasures. We want, you know, some really good ice cream or whatever it is, right? We get intoxicated by becoming. I want to become rich and famous or I want to become whatever, right? We become intoxicated by this. And we're intoxicated out of ignorance. We ignore what's really going on and it's like we're drunk, right? Eric Kolvig had a great simile. He said, samsara isn't really a wheel. It's a drunken party in a casino. <laughs> Our job is to sober up, find the exit, and get out. And you know what they're serving to get us drunk? Sense pleasures, becoming and ignorance, right? And you, you mix them together and you chug that back and you're stuck in samsara. The idea is to sober up and find the way out. So you can use your supremely concentrated mind to investigate sense pleasures and how they intoxicate you. You can investigate becoming how you want to change and what you're after and all this other stuff and see how that intoxicates you. And you can try and find where you're ignorant, where you're ignoring what's really going on. And if you can overcome these three, then you have arrived at total awakening and made an end to all dukkha. Now the sutta talks about the Four Noble Truths there and then it gives the asavas in the same pattern 
as the Four Noble Truths. These are the asavas, this is their origin, this is their cessation, this is the path of practice. That pattern, the Four Noble Truth pattern, gets applied to, I think I counted up, more than a dozen things. This is what it is, this is its origin, cessation, and the path of practice leading to it. Uh, it's applied to every one of the links of the 12 links of dependent origination. Uh, it's applied to all sorts of things. I suspect that the Four Noble Truths and the Asavas in the Four Noble Truths pattern are a later insertion into the Sutta. There is a simile that goes with it. And the simile talks about somebody standing on the shore of a lake and looking in and seeing shells and fish swimming about and sand and so forth. This is clearly a simile for seeing into. Seeing into insight. Right? So I'm thinking that originally what was given as this last of the steps on uh, the gradual path was something about insight into the asavas or insight into something that enables you to overcome the asavas. And as we find it happens at times in suttas, stock phrases get inserted in over what was originally there but leaves traces behind like a... a uh, simile that doesn't quite match what we find in the original part of it. So whatever it is, what we need to do is come to terms with our intoxication with sense pleasures, our intoxication of ideas of what we want to become, and being intoxicated out of ignorance. Overcoming that leads to the end of dukkha, which is the goal of the spiritual path. So now we can do questions until, well, not the cows come home, but until we go home. So... Questions, comments, one in the back. Um, one of the things we I haven't really heard about yet is is um, the concept of oneness or this kind of global consciousness. I don't know too much about it, but I mm-hmm. I did have a, a psychedelic experience that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was very interesting. <laughs> and I know, and I've heard from other more yeah. deeper p- practitioners that, there's, that, that, that this could be like a preview right. to that. So you don't find oneness in any shape or form in the gradual training. Just not there. Just simply nothing you could interpret that way. You don't really find oneness in the suttas. The closest you get is what might be called not chopping the world up into bits and pieces. The, world is, the word is asankata. In the Udana, in book 8, number 3, is the famous description of Nibbana. It's usually translated as something like unborn, unmade, unbecome, unconditioned. It's usually given as the unborn, the unmade, the unbecome, the unconditioned. That's eight words. Five of them are wrong. There's no articles in Pali. So there's no a, an, or the. All right? Unborn, unmade, unbecome. That's not too bad. Unconditioned is pathetic. The word is asankata. Asankarad. Sankara literally means making together. Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation of it as fabrication. So a sankara is a fabrication. This table is a sankara. You're a sankara. I'm a sankara. Uh, Truth, beauty, love, these are all sankaras. They're things that are created. So un-sankarad. So uh, un Fabricated or unconcocted would be the best way to translate it rather than unconditioned. Now, who is the fabricator? Who is the concoctor? The Buddha talks in multiple places about actually managing to penetrate the ability that we have to conceptualize everything and not get caught up in our concepts. All right, so now can you look at the world without chopping it up into bits and pieces of concepts? That's as close as it gets to the oneness thing. It never goes to oneness. It it more or less goes to non-multiplicity. But that doesn't take it quite into oneness. Uh, And there there are multiple suttas, not a lot, but a few that that actually address this. 
So um, oneness winds up showing up more as a result of the non-dual teachings that come out of the Mahayana. There's actually talks with, in the suttas where the Buddha the Brahmins ask him, is, is the world one? And he goes, no. Is right. it multiplicity? No. You yeah, know, all those extremes, he goes, no, no, it's not that. Yeah. And, He's then, looking, and then I think in a lot of me just goes into the 12 links of dependent origination to describe right. the world. Yeah, the, the whole thing of oneness and multiplicity doesn't capture what's going on. What captures it is the middle way between those, which is soda pie. Streams of dependently arising phenomena interacting. Yeah, and the 12 links is basically how the soda pie gets expressed. I mean, mo, mo, there's, there's a lot of sutras in a row where someone asks, you know, is it, is it this? Is, is, does a... Does the, the, the soul, does the soul take rebirth? How does it do it? Just don't ask, sorry, Bruce said, don't ask that question. Don't ask that question. And he says, what should I ask? And he just goes through the 12 things, the pen reads. It's like hammered yeah. in. It's like 10 suttas in a row in the yeah. Gudunakaya, just the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. If you want to study the Dharma in detail, take a look at the teachings on dependent origination but keep in mind that the 12 links is only an example it's not the full teaching the full teaching is that everything is dependent on other things nothing stands independent that this arises dependent on that if that doesn't happen this doesn't happen yeah but you got to remember that the whole linchpin of the 12 things pen origination remove their ignorance the whole mass of dukkha just drops right. Yeah, if so you that, can, that's the important thing. Forget about the world being interconnected, and uh, that's the important thing. You want to get beyond suffering. Yeah. Ignorance is the linchpin. Yeah, in a dependent origination, basically on a moment-to-moment basis, is for each sensory input. Notice the vedna. Don't let it lead to craving, but that's moment-to-moment to fully uproot the dukkha, pull the ignorance. When you've got no more ignorance, which is one of the asavas. Yeah, you're free. Other questions? You heard Gil respond to somebody's experience that they had experienced oneness. And he said, okay, basically that's nice, but Buddhism isn't about experiences. It's about uh, attaining freedom. So I think that's what you said. Yeah, that makes sense. Buddhism is about finding freedom from dukkha. Finding freedom from dukkha is understanding the world in such a way that you don't go doing stupid things that cause yourself dukkha. In particular, that when you get sensory input, you don't respond in ways that are dukkha-filled. Right? So uh, it's really about learning how to respond to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in ways that don't cause any dukkha. Uh, you're not going to escape the physical dukkha. The Buddha had a bad back. You know, sometimes he'd give the introduction to a talk and have to go lie down while Sariputta gave the talk or Ananda or someone. Okay, so, and he died a fairly unpleasant death. I mean, it was painful. Okay, so you can't overcome the physical dukkha, but you can overcome the mental dukkha. In particular... The word Vedana, this is one you need to really understand. It's sometimes translated as emotions or because it's translated as feelings. I give that a minus 10 bazillion as a translation. It's all about your initial categorization of sensory input. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? If it's physical, it's going to be unpleasant if, you know, it sets off the pain sensors. If someone is enlightened and someone else scratches their fingernails down the board, the enlightened person is not going to experience the fingernails scraping down the board as pleasant. It's the way your ear is wired. But they're not going to have the same adverse reaction that you and I are going to have to it. The downstream reaction is not going to be dukkha reaction. I remember reading an article in the New Scientist magazine on their website that said that 80% of our mental activity is generated by our mental activity. Only 20% of it comes in through the senses. What the Buddha promised was that you can learn to deal with that 80% in a way that there's no dukkha. But your pain sensors get 
set off, you hear two keys on the piano next to each other, it's going to be discordant, right? But it's not going to upset you. And that's what the Buddha is basically after there. So, yeah. I think it's important that you notice your hands burning. Uh, you, you, yeah. It's important to notice that your hand's burning when it's, when it's burning. So yeah, yeah. I, you, don't some, want, <laughs> you don't want the physical dukkha to go away because that's actually helping keep you alive, right? Other questions, comments? Um, so, if um, the statement here is that overcoming the asanas leads to liberation or awakening. It's the same as. It's the same as, yeah, meaning it, when they drop off, they fall off you obviously with some initiative and efforts on your part. Yeah. But then there is the different levels of awakening. So how does this relate to stream entry? The overcoming the asavas is full awakening, fourth level. Okay. Yeah. You get to keep all of your asavas at the first level. <laughs> all right. So there, there are ten fetters that bind us to the wheel of samsara. At the first level, you uproot a belief in a self, all right? You uproot belief in the efficacy of rites and rituals, and you uproot skeptical doubt. All right, so you have an experience, and there's no experiencer there. So now you see, oh, don't have to, don't have to assume that there's a self. And you get that way by doing the practice, not by lighting candles or doing prostrations. And you did what the Buddha told you to do, and you got the result you were going to get. So that's how it overcomes the three asavas. But you have uprooted a bit of ignorance there because you now have experienced that uh, uh, you don't have to postulate a self. But it still feels like there's a self, and that doesn't get uprooted to full awakening. So when you uproot the asava of ignorance... But two of the last fetters to go, one is ignorance and one is conceiving of a self, conceit. And so when you uproot the asava of ignorance, you take care of the last remaining fetters there. So the uprooting of the asavas corresponds to the fourth stage of awakening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. And is it the same in Theravada and in Theravada position? Not with the same sort of uptightness. Yeah. <laughs> um, you would hope that you had a teacher around who was more advanced than whatever you just experienced yes. so that you could go talk to a teacher and describe your experience, and they could understand what you're experiencing. But they still probably won't say, oh, that was stream entry. What they would probably say is something like, well, if that's stream entry, it says that a stream enter has morality dear to the noble ones. You should find over the next several months that your tendency to keep the precepts is effortless. All right, so instead of keeping the precepts because you know you should, it just becomes effortless. And if you've got to get rid of the ants in your kitchen, it really hurts. You know, that sort of thing. That if you break one, you know about it, and you can't unknowingly break one. It's like, oh, God, ants, go away, please. I don't want to kill you. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, it also says you have stronger faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So the teacher would tell you, you need to check out your faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. You know, how, how are you reacting to that? And then you also need to check the three fetters and see if they're gone. Do you have any doubts? Do you still believe you can get there by lighting candles? I mean, seems like it. Light, enlightenment, light candles, right? No? No? Okay. Uh, and then most importantly, do you think you have to have a self? I mean, it still feels like a self, but most importantly, actually, can, when you put your mind to it, can you step out of that? So basically, the teacher is only going to give you that much, and you're going to have to decide for yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it really doesn't matter where you are if you're anywhere before full awakening. 
because the instructions remain basically the same. Keep practicing. Keep the precepts. Guard your senses. Be mindful. Be content with little. Overcome the hindrances. Practice the jhanas. Gain some insight. Do what you can to get over the asavas. You know, that goes on until you get over the asavas. So, this is my very last. Mm-hmm. Mike. Mike. But so, if uh, you are, think you have, are, you know, at the point of stream entering and uh, you have done, you've practiced inside with good results, mm-hmm. uh, you don't feel, you know, in the grip of self or ego, at this point, your practice is basically just vipassana or no 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 it's everything that it was before nothing has you changed. continue to do the whole thing. the whole nine yards okay yeah okay. all of it okay yeah thank you this is the buddhist summary and i think this is also from the guru nikaya this is also from the guru nikaya mm-hmm. that a stream enterer has a remember a mod uh, they have virtue, a moderate amount of concentration and a moderate amount of discernment and then a once returner also has a moderate amount of the, the virtues there, the moderate amount of concentration, a moderate amount of discernment now when you get to non-returner, they have complete mastery of concentration complete mastery of virtue, a moderate amount of discernment and then the arhat has all four of those things perfected right, yeah there, there are other suttas you can find to try and get the four levels straightened out. There's, there's a chart on, on my website where I go into that. I don't have that sutta in there. I need to put that one on the chart. That's a good one. Right? Yeah. But basically, just keep practicing until you never experience any more dukkha. That's, that's the bottom line instructions. The key thing is to know what to do to practice. Anything else? All right. So, if there's nothing else, may any merit generated today from teaching, questioning, hearing, thinking, meditating be for the benefit and liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you very much.